Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. You know, one of the best things about having my own podcast is that I get to pursue areas that I find interesting and people that I find interesting. And a number of the people who have been my guests in the past or who are regular listeners often send me the names and information about people that they say, you just might want to interview. Well, I have one of those people here today. Pastor Mark Robinette from the Foundation Church in Mount Sterling, Ohio, has agreed to talk with us today. And just a little bit by way of his bio, he has been the pastor at that church for 20 years, but he's also been in full-time ministry for 12 years before that and traveled extensively around the world in missionary capacities. He also happens to be an award-winning journalist. As a two-time Associated Press investigative newspaper reporter, and he's written for numerous magazines and newspapers. He also is the recipient of numerous Thompson News Awards. Now, what was it about this man that was interesting to me? Well, recently, you might have heard of a place that you had never heard of before, a country called Myanmar. Myanmar has made it into the news recently because of some of the situations happening there. But Pastor Robinette has known about Myanmar for a long time. And just in case you think of yourself as really being ignorant, you probably have heard of Myanmar before. It just went under the name of Burma in Southeast Asia. But I'm going to let Pastor Mark tell us his story and why the the situations that he has and, and the interests that he has pursued along with his family, are important for all members of the body of Christ to hear, especially in terms of kingdom work. So, Mark, thanks for joining me today. I'm so glad to be a part of this show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really am looking forward to our time together. Very good. So, how about I just get you started on who you are and how you became aware of the Myanmar people and why you have pursued so much time, effort, and prayer into this people? Well, when I was a little feller, about eight years old, our pastor at the time came to our church with an interesting proposition. We were a growing church. And uh, in fact, we were growing so much that we had outgrown our building and we wanted to buy a new one or build a new one. And we were raising money. Our pastor challenged our church. They said, you know, we don't have enough to build really or buy at this point, but we do have a lot of money. There was $100,000 So you know what we should do? We should give it away to missions and pray that the Lord will bless us with what we need, kind of under the principles, you see to God's business, he will see to yours. And so he challenged the whole church. The church got excited about it, and he did it. And just very, very soon after that, a a very wealthy man came and and donated 57 acres to our church and uh, paid to help us build a beautiful church uh, out in Groveport, Ohio. You can imagine how this miracle kind of stuck with me, you know? And so in my life, as I've always been very mission-minded, very evangelistic, during the 1980s when I was a teenager in uh, high school, 
it was the time of the Vietnamese, Cambodian uh, boat people that came over to uh, America here who were fleeing difficulties there. Some of those kids came to our area and became friends with me and uh, brought them to church and baptized them and became very close to them. So I've always had a love for the Asian people. So fast forward many years, you know, now I'm a pastor. I was in the inner city working among poor and uh, drug addicted and really wasn't really getting a lot of help from other people. I kind of thought if I did that kind of work, people would, you know, maybe rally to my my side, but but a lot of people didn't. But we were we were really just right there in the in the darkness of all of that. I was frustrated about it. Uh, that the lack of help. And I was praying to the Lord and the Lord challenged me, find somebody that needs more help than you and you help them. And it was kind of put up or shut up when I really felt that very, very strong on my heart. And so I sought to find somebody who was really, really doing kingdom work. So I was asking everybody, where can I find somebody? I want to get involved in missions. How can I do that? And a friend of mine by the name of R.C. Sproul Jr., R.C. Sr.'s son told me that he had been to a place called, and I'll, I'll give you the way that, that they pronounce it, not the way Siri does or not the way people tell you to, but the actual way the people there pronounce it. It's me and Mark. And since my name is Mark, it's easy for me to remember it this way. I think of it as me and Mark. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's how I help to remember. But um, because uh, the, the Myanmar people, I had never heard of Myanmar. I had heard of Burma plenty of times growing up. I had really no idea about what Burma was other than just the name. And I knew it was far away in the, in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia. So I was in uh, our denomination was asked by RC Sproul Jr. And a man by the name of Doug Jones to consider sending someone to Myanmar. And this was right after he had told me about it. And I'm like, well, I want it to be me. And um, he said, well, we'll put it up to your denomination and whatever they decide uh, we'll go with that. So our denomination, thankfully, for my sake, uh, picked me and sent me. But R.C. Jr. got sick at the last minute, uh, right before the trip was supposed to take place, and he wasn't able to go. So I went alone. In the country there is very dangerous, especially for Christians. At, at this time, it was very, very dangerous on my first visit. Things changed soon after that, where the country opened up and a lot of changes came. But I, I met these people and just absolutely could not believe what I saw. In fact, I thought they were staging it all for me to see and that it wasn't real. What yeah. do you mean by that? I just couldn't believe anybody could do so much with so little and be in that much poverty and difficulty. I, it, was, it, it was beyond my comprehension. So I'm, I'm at a house, a block it's kind of like a garage that had been hit by a bomb is kind of what it, I, would, I would describe <laughs> it like. There were 45 people living in it, eating, they said, one meal a day, and they were cooking on a little fire in their backyard. And here I was, you know, from America. I'd never been to a third world country. I'd never seen anything like that. And I thought, this is unbelievable. You know, I mean, I flew in on an airplane, so I know that there are modern conveniences, but the level of the poverty and difficulty they were in startled me. And all the while they had orphans that they had taken off the street. They had made a Bible school in their home and they had 12 to 15 Bible school students, plus their family, plus elders who had gathered from around the country to come and meet me. And I was just like, wow. At first, like I said, I didn't believe it. 
obviously, if I'm here now, nearly 10 years later, I obviously found out it was real and and it was uh, a great treasure what I discovered there. Let's talk a little bit about missions in general. I think people have a very idealized view of what mission work is. And so um, they read the biographies of famous missionaries. And I, I don't know that they always include in their thinking process the difficulties of somebody coming from an area of relative affluence, moving into an area of poverty, and wanting to impose our standards on them. Could you speak a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, you have the the mission that people imagine, and then you have the real. It's 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 like with everything. The, the real is not what you imagine, but in this case, for me, it was actually more more intense. You, you're you're commuting with someone, and they're using email. But even before I went, I was able to call them on the phone. You you sort of imagine, you know, you're not back in the in, you know at the turn of the century. The, well, at the turn of the twentieth century. You're not way back there, but you encounter people who are living way more difficult than than you would imagine that they would be. And so missions definitely in application is a lot different than the theoretical side of missions. How important is it to really know the mission field you're going to move into culturally, economically, um, education level before you go in so that you can actually relate to people and they can relate to you? That's a wonderful question, Andrea. I had in my earlier days and back in the 1990s, I was a newspaper writer, as you mentioned earlier, and I traveled to the former Soviet Union right after the, the, the wall came down. And so I did a ton of research to prepare me for that. And, and so this, this is what I knew too. What I was covering back in the 90s in Russia was how the gospel had come into this place now that it was open. So this was the same kind of situation. The country was opening up to foreign visitors, and this time I wasn't a reporter coming in. I was a pastor coming to find out, can we, what can we do here to encourage these folks? And and I'll tell you the strategy that I had in my heart, and I really think it is very much so founded in Scripture our job is not to try to to do what they are doing or try to get them to do what we think they should do. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, to go there and like, Oh, we're going to go to, to, to Burma and we're going to, you know, we're going to evangelize the people and we're going to do all these good deeds. The truth is you don't know how to do that. You don't know their language. You don't know their culture. You don't know their customs. You don't know any of that. And so the better approach is helping them do what they're already doing. I was relating to my work in the inner city. People would want to help. And the way they wanted to help is they want to come into our little area and you know interact with the people as if they have any idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. And really what we needed were some resources and encouragement. Those were the two main things we needed. Just encouragement, just someone to talk to, someone to cheer us on, keep, keep at it. And resources is what we lacked as well. And so my main thrust of what we are doing there and what I would encourage people to do when they're involved in missions, don't feel like you have to go be the missionary. I think, I think we know we've learned better than that, or at least we're at a, a different stage in, in history that we need to go where their churches are established, like in Myanmar, and come alongside our brothers and sisters, find out what they do, meet them in the place where they're at, and then support them and not you know, I hear this so much 
you know, we don't want to just give them a fish. We want to teach them to fish as if they're stupid or something. Right. These people don't need to learn to fish. There aren't any fish. <laughs> well, uh, you see what I'm saying? Yes. You know, like, well, you know, and so, so many people get involved in like, well, let's start a big farm and let's, let's start this economic thing that'll support the ministry. But the, the truth, at least for what I have learned, okay, I'm not trying to say all of that is, is not a great idea. But when it comes to helping the pastors and leaders, they just need to be pastors and leaders. They don't need to quit being pastors and leaders and start a farm because then they'll be farmhands. They'll be factory workers. And what Myanmar needs and what every country needs are people who are preaching the gospel, who are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so I, I understand that we don't want to ruin them by just you know indiscriminately sending them money that they might not need. But in a place like Myanmar, money is exactly what they need. They already are with, with no money, no support and no help. They had 12 to 15 orphans, 12 to 15 Bible school students. They're feeding them all. They're taking care of them. They're evangelizing in villages. They're starting churches. Well, if you find them doing that, then just help them do it uh, rather than come and go, well, the proper way to do this would be to do it and give them a book written by the early Puritans or something like that. I think you bring up an excellent point. Sometimes people need to humble themselves before they go to help someone and I think it might be because as Americans, we're used to instant gratification. We're used to, if you want it, go get it. And so we think that's the way to approach everyone. But yeah. you, you have to understand, as I think it's Henry Van Til who says that culture is religion externalized. Right. You've got to learn what's important to the people and then validate, as you said, the pastors who are going against it. As far as I know, Christians are in a minority. And so right. what are they up against and what are the forces they have to combat in order to further the gospel? Yeah, they right now in uh, in Myanmar, it is a felony to to intentionally try to convert a Buddhist to Christianity or to any other religion. You will go to prison. So that's a that's kind of an important thing to know. These folks, these these Christian folks that are there. They have been so starved for encouragement. It, you know, the way that I see it and the way that I've come to see it uh, more so since I've been working there is the body of Christ is a real body with veins and arteries and nervous systems and connectivity. And they have been cut off for years and years and years from the blood flow of the body of Christ. I didn't realize the value just of me being there, just of sitting there and talking to them. You know, I was doing something without realizing I was doing anything. You know, we we want to go on a mission trip where we, and I say we, I just mean, you know, this seems to be the sentiment where we're, you know, we're the ones putting bricks on a building and we go away, look, I build a building. And that's nice. But in a country where there are very few jobs and where if you do have a job, you might earn $5 a day. You don't need to pay $2,000 for a plane ticket fly over there and, 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 and put bricks up when there's plenty of people that would do that and, and would love to do it. And all you would have to do is sponsor $5 a day worker. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. But we like the way that it feels so much that I really think we become addicted to our own good works. There's something that Jesus said that I think people do not understand the theological nuance of. And you remember when Jesus was telling them, hey, when I was sick, you didn't visit me. 
when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't give me food. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. And they said, well, when did we, when, when did this happen? Right. And he said, when you, when you do these things for the least of these, my brethren, or when you didn't do it for the least of these, my brethren, God isn't calling us to just go to the local prison where people have been locked up for rape and murder and robbery and drug addiction and drug uh, selling and all that and, and visit them. And then we've done a good deed. This is talking about visiting our brothers in Christ who've been in prison. That's a whole different kind of prison visit than the guy who beats up his wife and he's in prison. I'm not saying we shouldn't visit him. Maybe we should visit his wife. Maybe, maybe right. we should visit his children. Uh, as my good friend Tim Yarbrough says, that's what they like to do. Visit the wife and children. And that's the best way they could ever minister to the guy in prison. And so in, in Myanmar, we are helping our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's way better than just, you know, giving food to someone on the street, you know, here in America, doing this, you know, this good deed thing that we like to do. We go on Thanksgiving to the homeless shelter and do our thing. I'm not saying that there's no place for that. I've done it. I've worked with the homeless plenty. I, in fact, I'm involved in a homeless ministry out in California with a friend of mine who has a church out there. I'm not against it. I'm just really, really for finding hungry Christians, thirsty Christians, cut off and imprisoned Christians and encouraging them and helping them do what God has called them to do. So does that make sense? Yes, it does. It, it reminds me of in Galatians, do good unto all men, but especially, especially. unto of the body of Christ. So now I did, a, you know, I always do a bunch of research. I've, you know, scoured your websites, watched your videos, and there was something I particularly appreciated about your orientation. Um, really? You do have people that want to help your work yes. who, especially now you can't just get on a plane and go to a different country. Um, that sort of has changed in the last year. But if you send someone who has eyes to see you pointed out that you could look around and instead of saying, well, they need a new building, you could say this guy could support his family if he had a bicycle. And so you have the resources somebody gave you, you buy yeah. him a bicycle and then you video him on his bicycle saying <laughs> thank you to the person who did it. And the person didn't throw money into the wind. They helped right. such and such a person who has a name be able to care for his family. Yeah. I, you know, when I was younger, you know, we watched probably a lot more television than maybe we should have, but late at night, they used to run these commercials, these compassion international commercials would run and, and they would show, it was the time during the Ethiopian crisis and, and they were, they would show, you know, flies walking around on the people's faces and they were hung and I, it would kill me. And I would be like, I really, really want to give to them, but how could I give to them? And you know, my mind was kind of working on me. I'm like, well, why doesn't the cameraman hand them some food right, or right. do Get something? The flies you know? off and, their mouth. Right, right. And so, and so then I was with my mom and dad, and I was, you know, thinking about this. And we're driving around. I looked over, and there was a building, and the whole building had the name of this charity on it. And I was like, how did they do that? How did they build a building like that? And then it all started to dawn on me the millions of dollars that go into you know, building these buildings and, and running these giant organizations. And I found out they keep so much of this money. I'm not saying all of them do, but the big ones, the ones that get really, really good at raising money, less and less of the money seems to make it to the field. So when I realized I was going to go to a country like that, I thought, you know, I can give every bit of whatever I bring with me to 
to them. I don't need to keep any of it. My church is, you know, takes care of me and I, I can go and whatever. And so I told people, what, hey, if you send it with me, I will write down how much it is. I will look for the needs. I'll meet them and I'll film it. And that was such, that was so much fun. I had never, ever been able to give like that. Now, the whole time I'm wondering, am I going to get malaria or somebody going to kill me while I'm there? Because it, it's a very scary place. But but this whole more blessed to give than to receive, I, I was like Santa Claus on steroids. I mean, it, it was the it was the greatest experience uh, I'd ever had to be able to really meet these needs like this, and 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 the people that gave made it possible for me to do. It. And I got all of the thanks from right. these people, and I would tell them, no, 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 and I would say, you need to. It's Bonita, you know. I would name you know uh, the woman who gave me the money, or. Oh no! It's this, you know, it's the this this family from Tennessee, the Lovitz, you know, they gave so that you could have. Oh, we we know, but without you, Pastor Mark, that we would have none of these. You know, I'm like, well, okay, thank you for that. But but it's such a wonderful feeling to connect the body like that. To to be in a village and and buy some pigs that they can breed and and use to sell and care for the orphans and and for a family in Ohio. You know the. The, the Chapmans gave toward that, or the young girls from our church all put their pennies together and they gave a gift. It, it's it's wonderful to get to be a part of that. It's been my favorite part of this work. I can imagine. You know, the Bible talks about the tithe, and there are three tithes, one of which is the poor tithe. And as R.J. Rush Juni mentions in his book, Institutes of Biblical Law, charity is always supposed to be personal and it's supposed to be face-to-face. Now, granted, the people in the U.S. don't all travel over to buy a bicycle or buy livestock for people to raise, and so you're their ambassador. But in a very real sense, that's a really good picture of what we're supposed to be as Christians, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So in truth, there are mission fields all around us, and rather than think that the answer is throwing money at people— the answer should be, I think, get to know them and find out what will help them serve God better. That sums it up wonderfully. I've known lots of churches who give, you know, we, they have a, a board, you know, in their lobby and they have all these pins on all these countries around the world. And they're like, oh, we give $25 a month here and $25 a month here and $25 a month here. And I'm totally not against any of that. But I said, you know what I want to do? I want to have like one pin. <laughs> and and I want to know these people, love these people. I want them to be my brother and my sister. I want I want to know them the rest of my life. And I want to I want to build. You know, I'm I'm very kingdom minded. I'm very very mindful of the constant, ever expanding reign of Christ. I mean, He reigns over everything, but the taking of it. You know, the taking mm-hmm. dominion that God has called us to do. And so I want to build a you know a permanent beachhead. You know, I want to. I wanted, so we've brought the people over here to our home and we brought them to our presbytery and they've stayed in the homes of other people within our church and our other, in our denomination. We then brought his pastor Nang's wife over with us. Well, let me just say a couple of things on what you said. And that is when you bring people from another country to America. And I remember hearing this story. I don't think it was from Burma, but it was from someplace in Southeast Asia that this man had come and he was going to share the needs of his people. And he went to a church potluck and they couldn't get him to eat because he watched how much food was thrown away, 
how much food was wasted. And he actually felt guilty because he knew how little the people of his town or village had. And I think that it's probably a good thing for us to view ourselves from other people's eyes so that when we complain about how terrible it all is, and we look in terms of what people are doing with the resources God has given them, it should shame us to a degree to say, are our priorities kingdom priorities? You know, there's a saying that gets thrown around my house and in my world quite a lot where someone will complain about something. And one of my kids who incidentally, lots of them have been with me to me and my, one of my sons has been six times. They'll look and they'll say, dad, that's a first world problem. <laughs> you, <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> you know, I was really worried about bringing them here because when I came home from my first trip, it hurt me just to look around at the waste, exactly what you're talking about. You know, it made me feel it made me feel sinful and uh, wasteful just by just by being just my whole existence. You know, I have a big home, and and you know, I'm not American standards. I'm not a rich person in it at all. I, in fact, I told them you might think this is funny, Andrew. I, I would tell them they, they said you are you are a great great rich man. I've said no, no, I'm not. I'm not at all. And I would try to explain to them that you know I have to like split wood to keep the fire going to keep my house going from the pipes freezing and. I'm trying to explain to them why I'm I'm not rich. And as the more I got into it, I got to laughing at myself. Mm -hmm. And and then I stopped and I said, no, no, no. I said, I would like you to forget everything I said. I am rich, fat American. That's exactly what I am. That's exactly who I am. So I'm sorry I was trying to correct your understanding of who I am. You had it right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Okay, so. You taught up, you brought up the subject of being rich. And I think it's important to look at the difference between being wealthy and being rich. In a modern way, rich is how much money you have in the bank. Wealth could include property, family, knowledge, understanding, fellowship. And so it sounds to me that when you went there, you encountered some very wealthy people who could use some resources. But it's not like spiritually they were impoverished. No, no, they weren't at all. And that is why I called the book that I wrote, Me and Margold. I went there and at first I saw their overwhelming poverty and it was painful for me to see. I literally at one point, because of the emotion of it, something I saw there, I threw up. Wow. It was that bad. I, I can describe it if you want me to describe it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the most painful scene I've ever seen in my life of poverty. And I saw it there and I just got overwhelmed and I literally threw up. It was that painful. I'm going to get emotional just talking about it. But anyway, but I went there when I, I saw their poverty. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to bring them gold. You know, I'm going to bring them treasure. But I ended up dis- discovering Myanmar gold is what I did. You have written a book about yeah. your experience and these people, and that's the title of it, and it's available for purchase. Yep. Yeah, foundationsofgrace.org, or you can even buy it on Amazon. It actually costs more there. It's not a print-on-demand. It's a hard copy book we printed ourselves, but we sell it through Amazon too. Meeting people who are this thankful, who are this humble, who are taking the little that they have and doing more with it than we do with the much that we have. Right. 
That's cool. I can see how some people might go, that would make you throw up. Uh, I can see it. I can see it because it convicts you to a place that says, have I been as kingdom-minded as I think I've been? Well, I, I'll describe this thing that I, you know, it, maybe it's hard to imagine what I'm talking about. I was, I went to a nighttime street fair celebration. They actually recommended I not do it, but it was so boisterous and so loud. I, I said, I've got to see what in the world was going on out there. They were worried about me and, you know, there, nothing happened, obviously. But so I'm out there and they are flanking me on either side. and. It is a dangerous place, but but I'm not really scared of most things. And so I went into this street fair and and as I'm walking along, we're kind of almost like a river of people moving through this area, just thousands of people. And all of a sudden the 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 people parted kind of like a, a stream would at a rock, you know, a big rock. And right on the ground in front of me was a man. I looked down and I saw his leg, and his leg looked like he had just like fallen out of a car that had been on fire and his leg was bleeding and it was oozing like this clear liquid that comes from burns. And, and he had a candle down like between his feet, his, so you could see the, the bleeding injury. Mm -hmm. And, and then I looked up and he's holding an infant baby in his hand and he's just like sitting there and he's just like crying. And I'm looking at this and I wanted to just reach down and pick him up and like walk, take him somewhere to get help. And the man who was with me gently took me by the arm and kind of pulled me away. And he said, Pastor Mark, he said, this man burns himself so that people will give him money. Wow. And when he said that, I was just like, oh, you know, like, how could anybody be that desperate? He he found a baby to hold. He burned himself. He's so in need and so desperate of money. He's doing that to create compassion. Wow. I just, I'd never seen anything like that. And there were, there was a lot of that. There. Yeah. So I think this goes back to what do we really think as believers is the most important thing in anyone's life, depending, regardless of what continent they're on, what their socioeconomic level is, it's knowing Jesus Christ, their need to have their sin atoned for, that they can only be saved through Christ, and that what follows then is service. And I, and I think it's so easy to decide that the world could have solutions to problems that don't include the gospel, and that's only a recipe for either creating new problems or prolonging old problems? Yes. You know, when Jesus said the poor you will always have with you, he was really saying what you are saying. This idea that we're going to, you know, give until there's no more poverty is not the answer. It's we're going to be, we need to give Christ. And when we bring him, it changes. Christ changes everything. Yes. He changes economic situations, cultural, political, all of those things that we cannot affect as an individual, you know, enough to change the whole wide world collectively as believers in the body of Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. We indeed can see the world change, but it's not going to be through, quote, economic development. You know, it's right. going to happen through hearts being changed by faith being born in the hearts of people when they hear the word of God. That's why. 
when I was with him, it wasn't just like, oh, they have an orphanage and they have poor children. What was, what was important to me was he's preaching the gospel and he has a Bible school and he's training young people and he's evangelizing in places that are terrifying to even go to. War is going on. People are being killed and burnt alive in their homes. And he's preaching in a, a revival two miles down the road. When I see a guy doing that and he's like, he said, it's amazing. All I have to do is buy some food. And he said, and then they all come. He goes, and they think that I am a foolish man because I have wasted all of my money buying food. And he goes, but while they eat, I preach. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, well, there you have it. That I sounds a lot people. like William Booth of the Salvation <laughs> Army, actually. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I have met countless converts of this ministry. I've heard their stories. And a lot of them start off with, I was hungry. There was one young boy at the Bible college there who had come in as an orphan when he was just a real little boy. And in, in their villages, sometimes orphans will run around the outside of the village like a little pack of dogs, and no one is caring for them at all. They just literally live like animals, and they, they will steal what they can steal. And this boy was one of those boys. And at a revival meeting, they put food on the ground on a plate about uh, 100 feet from where they were, and he would come and eat from it every day. And until they got him closer and closer to the meeting, I was talking to him on his graduation service. I had helped graduate him from Reformation Theological Seminary of Yangon. And he had gone from a boy who was like an animal to a boy who is going out to preach the word of God, a new creature. Wow. And uh, man, that was, that was something else. And uh, I've gotten to see a lot of that. So obviously people had predated your presence because they had scriptures. Um, they oh, had yeah. been translated. Were they reading them in English or were they reading them in their own language? A man by the name of Adoniram Judson uh, and his wife, Anne, in the uh, late 1800s came as America's first missionary. A lot of people don't know that Burma holds the great distinction of being the place where America sent her first missionary. Now, there is some dispute. Maybe there might be another guy that might have gone somewhere, but for years, he's been known as America's first missionary. He came, and in, the, in his work that he did, he actually lost six children and three wives who died. And during his work, he, he said, I will not leave Burma until the cross of Christ is planted here forever. Judson translated the Bible. His story is written it's in, on, on, golden shore, on the Golden Shores. Is an amazing missionary story that a lot of people don't know, but if you've ever read it or heard of the book, you got to check it out. He is imprisoned by the people there because after he begins his mission, the British invade and take it over as a colony, or they're trying to. Uh, the Burmese put him in prison for years. They hang him upside down. He translates the Bible writing it on the leaves of palm branches or on, on palm leaves and hiding yeah. it in a pillow. It's an incredible story. So he had, he had translated the Bible into the Burmese language, and that Bible has remained relatively without need of change for years and years. His work was incredible. The people that I was working with are the Chin. In, the, at eight, in like 1899, another missionary group from America came to the Chin people for the very first time. Arthur and Laura Carson came. In fact, I'd never heard their story. Their story is tremendous. I reprinted it, uh, and I we published republished the book. It's 
called Pioneer Trails, Trials and Triumphs. And they came to the Chin people, brought the gospel, and Arthur Carson, who ended up dying of appendicitis there, translated the Bible into the Chin language, made a dictionary for them. His wife, Laura, helped a great deal in the work, and she stayed 12 years after he died. Wow. Continuing the work. So a lot of incredible missionaries, and most of them all from America. Uh, Other countries did eventually join in, but America pioneered the mission of evangelizing the people of of that whole area in, in the different cultures that they had. The Burmese, the Chin, the Karen, the Shan, the Mon, the Naga, there's a bunch of people groups there. Each of them have a a tremendous story, which actually I'm trying to help retell through a historical initiative I have. So it's not surprising then to find out people in Africa, people in Asia mourn for America because they really feel that America needs missionaries because America that should have continued to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ that sent out all these missionaries currently experiencing a real poverty in the arena of spiritual growth. It would not surprise me if we are not re-evangelized by the people of Burma, by the people of China and Africa. We may go through a, a revival that comes from without us, and maybe that would be God's way of reminding us uh, that you know America isn't the promised land. The promised land is the whole world. We've been promised all of it. And and America isn't the answer for that. I pray that the people here repent, call on God, but it may be in God's providence that he will re-evangelize us by the people that we have evangelized. You know, that would be kind of an amazing gospel story. Let's talk about your family. You have eight children. The two youngest are ones you have adopted into your family. And your children have been very much involved in your ministry, not by force, but by <laughs> desire. Yeah, yes, they have. And wow, that's that's been pretty a, a pretty tremendous unforeseen blessing. And it is a it's a humbling thing. You know, people love their kids and they they want their kids to be excited about, you know, who they are or what they're doing. And my children, all of them, are very involved in what we do, you know, from running social media to answering questions to going on, you know, these mission trips with us and organizing that. They have taken the work very seriously. It's, it's just a great thing to share with them. In my book, in the very last chapter, I, I really kind of open that up a bit mm-hmm. and talk about how uh, being in Myanmar and some of the gold of it for me personally is how it's affected my children. You know, we can uh, we can talk to our children, we can teach our children, but we can also show them. By God's grace, I've been able to do some things, and they've been able to watch me do them, and they have become instruments of those very same things. My kids will all be involved in this ministry and in ministries like this. I am sure of it. Uh, they seem to have a heart for it, and it's just been the perfect tool to teach what God's word tells us we should do. We can be doers of the word in these things, but my kids, yes, very much a part of it. And that's a blessing for parents to see their children walking in faith and not just an intellectual abstract faith, but actually faith applied. Looking at the videos, it's very obvious, I'm sure, when the Robinettes show up in (laughs) Myanmar, 
that yeah. stand out because y'all don't look like the folks of Myanmar. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, they they want to kind of look like the people of Myanmar. You'll notice that the girls are wearing the traditional clothes half the time there. The men there in the, in Burma, Myanmar, whichever you, you prefer to use, they wear these long, they're like skirts, okay, but they're called longi. My kids wear their longis with great pride. They wear them here. <laughs> and I know some people might think it's weird, but, you know, my sons will walk around wearing these longis. They'll wear them to church. Now they wear pants underneath them. <laughs> you <know>? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. But for them, no one's going to make fun of them. These are their people, you know? Right. And uh, they love them. The, uh, the, there are young people from our church who haven't gone with us. You know, you can't take the whole church with you. But young girls in our church, are they, they dress like the Myanmar people. Actually, a group of little girls got it in their head that they were going to do something good. And they started a fundraising drive. Which kind of reminded me, like, uh, there's a there's a, a, a one of these lamplighter books called Jill's Red Bag. They had several of them had read that, and rather than just hearing about it, they wanted to get in on it, and they raised hundreds and hundreds of dollars. One family is in 4-H, and you know how at the end of it they sell the animal, and they have the they're selling these gigantic pigs that are worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and the proceeds they're giving to the people of Myanmar. That's so, amazing. That and it's 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 gratifying. Oh yeah, oh yeah. For them and for me, I love the the section in in Second uh, Corinthians where Paul is describing the manifold blessings of the giving that goes on. He says, you know, when we give them gifts, not only does God bless us for doing it, but then they give thanks for us before God. They offer up prayers for us before the Lord. This this exponential, this manifold blessing of giving is just, it just gets addicting. And when you start giving, you realize that it really doesn't cost anything. In fact, it gives to you. I know I've already quoted him once, but my friend, my friend Tim, he will say, he'll say, uh, Mark, he said, it's almost like there's a God in heaven. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we give and uh, oftentimes when we do our fundraising campaigns online, we give the money to the people in Myanmar before we have it. And I'm like, we'll get it. God will provide it. And and, it, and there was one point where I was so stressed out of, about trying to be a fundraiser that I was going to quit. And I, 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 you know, I had fulfilled a, a, a basically a vow I had made to the Lord to do it for five years. And I was at the end of this and I was like, Lord, this is so much stress. I'm worried. I got to, you know, help my church and my family and I got to raise money for these people. And it was just stressing me out because I kind of got the wrong idea about it. And I felt the Lord say, well, would you like somebody else to receive the blessings? You know, it's kind of what, <laughs> and then I'm like, no, 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 no. God put on my heart that he loves them and he provides for them. And his way of loving me was letting me be the guy to hand them the money. And I think that's the privilege of being a Christian, that yeah. our life is not our own. I, I know my husband used to go crazy because he'd always say to me on birthdays or anniversaries, what do you want? And I'd be like, I don't know what I want. If I, you know, I already have, I think what I want. And he yeah. says, you mean there's nothing you want? I said, well, what I really want might take millions of dollars. So if we can get millions <laughs> of dollars, then I'll have a whole bunch of ideas of how to carry out what I want. But in the meantime, Nobody sent me or given me millions of dollars. <laughs> you do what's right in front of you. So if you can help that widow, if you can help that fatherless yeah. child, 
Um, you're not going to get applause from major networks. Uh, most people won't even know it, but God yeah. knows. It. Yeah. What he knows matters. After that, it seemed like something changed in me. And, you know, and it was probably just a journey of sanctification God had me on. I came to see this as God's provision. I, and, and we all know this, okay? But it's, it's like we're so sinful, we need to be reminded over and over and over again. And I did, though, get to a point where I kind of made it over a hump. And I decided, you know what? I am not going to send out emails praying, you know, for, for them to be answered and really not just praying, I, more fretting over the whole thing. Right. I, I worked on it. I sent it out and nobody replied, not one person. If people only knew, and I was like, you know, carrying this around, like, you know, this is my great suffering in life that no one's answering my emails. I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore, ever. If, if $1 comes or no dollars come, the Lord sends it all. And I'll tell you from that day forward, there has been a flow of finances that have been able to do so many things that I, it's amazing. You know, I've never bought myself a new truck in my whole life. And I, I got to buy a brand new four-wheel drive Ford truck, which is kind of mine. When I'm in Myanmar, they let me drive it around. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I got me a new truck. And Pastor Dang reminds me that it's his. But, <laughs> I see. Um, but you know, I, I got to, I've never built myself a house before. But I built a house there for Pastor Nang. I built an orphanage. And I say me, you know, it wasn't me, but I got to be, you, you know, I got to play a role in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to segue into something that our friend, we've mentioned him a couple of times, Tim Yarbrough, because Tim yeah. and I, I've interviewed him for this podcast. Plus we talk regularly and you talked about fretting over things. And one of the things that I have encountered among Christian families, especially families like yours that have a number of children, they fret over, will my children find spouses that have the same desire to serve the kingdom as my children? You know, Tim and I have talked in terms of networking, that people would say, if I know uh, an eligible, meaning the person's not married and wants to be married and wants to have children, and somebody across the country also knows that, what would be the harm? Obviously, the question would be, what would be the good of people knowing that the other people existed? So he said that you sort of- um, Now, have... Sister Andrea, now listen now. You didn't tell me we were going to talk about this. I know, I know. Now, I'm, jo I'm joking around. What I'm saying is, is I know what will happen as soon as we start talking about this. I can already imagine my ministry expanding in this area. Now, what's funny is, is it is absolutely a ministry God has given us that has borne some of the most beautiful fruit of anything we've ever done. If we talk about this, I'm going to get 400 emails asking for help. Well, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. I have already put it out there in the past with other people <laughs> I've spoken to, and I yeah. would appreciate getting such emails. And I am regularly trying to network people together. And what I say is this, I introduce you to this family. This family gets introduced to you. Don't do anything in terms of marriage unless God sanctions it. So the point is, I'm not afraid of getting contact, and I know you probably aren't either, but- no. What I'm interested in is helping people who aren't looking for Romeo or aren't looking for Juliet. They're looking for a faithful Christian already serving God. 
oh, we yeah. want to work with other faithful Christians serving God and that they come together and if they begin families, praise the Lord. Well, you know, I, as a, and I hate to use this term, but I mean, Paul used it and I, I'm not trying to view myself in, in a more exalted manner, but, but I just want to say, you know how Paul said, as a master builder, mm-hmm. you've got to take heed how you build. Uh, I really do believe that as pastors and elders and, and leaders in the church, that we are absolutely building the kingdom of God. And the 39 articles has a, uh, it's, it's a reform confession in it. It's, it says that, you know, that, that the, that building supplies, you know, the lumber, the brick, the whatever are no more a building than, than people who just say they know Christ, who aren't part of a church, who aren't connected to other people. I love connecting people and especially into intimate covenanted relationships because it is the beginning of an entire world. It's the, it's the, the, the fountainhead for faithfulness that is going to come after that. And so when I meet people and I really see their heart for the Lord and, and I see their desire to serve the Lord and to build the kingdom, I make it a point to to do what the Pharisees did, only not for evil. You know, I, I will travel land and sea <laughs> to, to help people. And I'm not I'm not offering this to everybody, but I'm sure I'll do it for other people. But I've traveled, you know, many states away and met their friends and their families and their relatives and done research. I've As a, a guy who was an investigative reporter, I have some interview skills and investigative skills, and I've used them to, to help people to get a comfort. You know, when there was a guy from Wisconsin, I was helping to join together with someone from Ohio and we literally stayed in their pastor's home. Uh, I interviewed the neighbors. Uh, we spent much, much time with them. And, and, and before I could feel comfortable for things moving, you know, forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I even joked the guy, I'm like, I'm like, brother, you know, if you don't work out for this young lady, I will, I'll do anything to find you someone. I, I I just fell, you know, in a deep, you know, spiritual fatherly kind of a love with this young sure. man. And I'm just like, I'm going to help you. And he, and and we did help him. In fact, he's moved here to our church. Uh, he and his wife attend here. They have three children. They have a fourth one about to be born. And I get to see the fruit of that work. Yes. Well, in our, in our church, in about uh, eight couples uh, that we've done that with here. Um, but there are others, other places too. And, and when you, when you get to be a part of that, I'll tell you one of the fruits of that, that's kind of fun. One of these exciting stories, which I won't tell the whole story. I'm a big storyteller, but so this man that we helped marry the girl from here, from Ohio, they live in our church. He had a brother and the brother said, Hey, you know, you really did a great service for my brother. Could, could you help me? And so we did. And he is now married and they have children too. And mm-hmm. they have these little cute, three little boys that they have, but on one day, two blocks from one another, something really incredible happened. Both of these young ladies were pregnant and uh, they also were giving birth at home and they have midwives and they actually have the same midwife. And so one of them called, Hey, I think I'm going into labor. The other one was not due for a few weeks, but when she got there, she said, you know, you're, you're not, you're not ready to give birth till you know, many hours from now. Well, the other one, the other, the sister-in-law right. uh, called and said, I think I'm going into labor. She goes over and 
delivers the other baby and then comes back and delivers the other one on the same day. <laughs> Can you believe that? Uh, two hours apart, two sister-in-laws, two blocks away from each other, both delivered uh, babies with the same midwife. You, you can't make this stuff up. No, that's um, great. But these well, these brothers bless our church and our family and getting to be a part of their life is, is such a, it's just a wonderful thing. So yeah, I'm kind of addicted to helping people out like that too. Yeah, you had some good addictions. I have to say that, Mark. <laughs> so um, we're coming to the end of our time. I've appreciated okay. hearing two aspects of things that are on your heart that you pursue. And just to make it so that you're not inundated, if there any, if there's anybody who's interested, they can always reach out via the out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Now they know that they've got an investigative reporter who's going to make sure that any recommendations he makes are solid recommendations. And I don't uh, make any other kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then of course, I will put the links to your books and your work with the Myanmar people. I thank you because I think even if those who listen to what we've just talked about don't feel particularly called to go overseas or do mission work, my guess is there's something right in front of them that if they really took a look, they would see, I can serve the kingdom this way. And that is my mission field. Thank you, Andrea, for your service to the kingdom and your willingness to do the hard work that connects believers through your broadcast to uh, people everywhere. Connectivity is a critical part of kingdom work. It, a lot goes into it, and I just I thank you, and may the Lord bless you for your your efforts. Well, I will take that, and thank you very much for that, listeners. Thanks for joining us today. As I said, if you want to get in touch, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.